This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, December 6, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. What has regulation of financial markets given us? John Allison, president of the Cato Institute and former CEO of BB&T, says the problems of individual firms are often known to the market long before regulators even get involved. He spoke at the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference last month. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be with you. I first, on behalf of uh, Cato, I want to thank you all for being here. I know we have a number of sponsors are here, and I thank you for your support very much. You make uh, our work uh, possible. I'm going to talk from a little bit different perspective because I'm the only person that actually ran a, bu- uh, a bank uh, uh, that's been speaking today. Um, and from that context, I can tell you with absolute certainty that market discipline beats regulatory discipline. In fact, I will argue that regulatory discipline will always fail in the context of uh, reducing volatility and also in the context that it will slow economic growth. And I base those comments on uh, my understanding of public choice theory and particularly on 40 years of concrete experience in the banking business. One observation, in my 40-year career, I don't know a single time where the federal regulators, this primarily would be the FDIC, actually identified a significant bank failure in advance. They're always the last guys to the party. Uh, after everybody in the market, the other bankers know something's going on. Uh, and so in that context, you have a 100% failure rate. And in my experience in banks, we took over because we did lots of mergers and acquisitions. When they did get involved in the bank that was struggling a little bit, they almost always, they always made it worse because they didn't know how to run a bank. Um, Interesting uh, reflection from public choice theory, reinforced consistently through my career, is regulators regulate for the regulatory good. That shouldn't be too surprising. They like to talk about the public good, and sometimes the regulatory good and the public good may align, but they don't manage for the public good, they manage for the regulatory good, and that happens over and over again. And I can concretize what that means. First, in good times, Regulators basically don't regulate on things like safety and soundness. Why is that? Or if you're a local bank examiner, things are going along in the economy. Maybe you see something that bothers you in the bank, but it's not in trouble yet, but you think it might get in trouble. What's your best thing to do? Well, if you start raising a bunch of red flags, bankers have plenty of political contacts, and you're going to have a real big problem. And you can't prove your point because you're guessing what's going to happen in more difficult times. So regulators basically don't regulate from a safety and soundness perspective during difficult times. I'll give you a concrete example of that. Um, BB&T took over a, a large failed bank called Colonial, $25 billion bank. We did it with FDIC assistance. Uh, they weren't doing us a favor. <laughs> they were failing, <laughs> and they needed somebody to take them over. Well, it was interesting um, in... When I was CEO, we did lots of acquisitions of community banks in in the Southeast, and Colonial was on our list of potential acquisition uh, targets. We consciously decided not to to acquire it without FDIC insistence because we knew it was going to fail. How do we know it was going to fail? First, it was rolling up lousy banks. If you make lots of acquisitions of bad banks, you end up with a bad bank. Secondly, in competing with them, we we observed that they would take what was called hog shares of high-risk credits we wouldn't touch. Thirdly, the CEO is a command and control guy who might could have run a $2 billion bank, but couldn't possibly uh, develop the tank of uh, the talent to run a, a big bank. So we wouldn't acquire Colonial, uh, and we saw that from the outside, and the regulators missed it. They missed that process, and that was very typical. In addition, 
regulators are very politically driven. You got to remember that at the top of the regulatory organizations, these are basically political appointments. You don't get on these, you don't get to be the head of the FDIC without having some political contacts. You don't get to be the head of the Federal Reserve without having political contacts. It just doesn't work that way. So you, you have people that come from a political perspective. So regulations change a lot with who the president is, what the administration is. So we don't have rule of law. We have rule of leg regulators driven by what's happening in the current environment. Concretizing that, under Bill Clinton, his big issue was fair lending. They, the regulators paid almost no attention to safety and soundness, which didn't matter because the economy was doing well, right? Uh, it could have done mattered, but it didn't matter. They focused on fair lending. Under George Bush, uh, we focused almost exclusively on the Patriot Act. One of the great myths, however, is that banks were regulated under Bush. Three major new laws were passed under Bush. The Privacy Act, Sarbanes-Oxley, and the Patriot Act. There was a massive increase in regulation during the Bush uh, year, the most until the re recent times. So we were not deregulated, as the myth goes. We were misregulated. In fact, that's one of the great myths that's out there, is the cause of the financial crisis was a combination of deregulation of the banking business, we weren't deregulated, and then greed on Wall Street. Now, in my 40-year career, there's always been plenty of greed on Wall Street. There's not one shred of evidence there was any more greed than usual. Uh, in fact, the financial crisis, as uh, uh, was just described, was really caused by a combination of mistakes made by the Federal Reserve. In the early 2000s, we, were, we had a housing bubble that started in 1993. We had house prices about 15% too high already in the early 2000s based on income. The market was getting ready to correct. The thick Greenspan shows up with negative real interest rates, spurs the bubble on, on up, and we end up with a 30 35% correction. Of course, that was added on by Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. And yes, plenty of banks made big mistakes and should have been allowed to fail, but those mistakes were highly incented by <coughs> government policy. So the recent financial crisis wasn't caused by deregulation or greed. It was caused by government policy. And yes, some institutions made mistakes within the context of highly incentive policies from the regulators. Now, under uh, President Obama, we have a unique phenomenon in my career. We have uh, an administration that likes all regulations. <laughs> they like everything. Now, the dilemma with that is you can't comply with every regulation because there's so many of them. So the Privacy Act and the Patriot Act are in conflict with each other, which makes it tough. It gives the regulators a lot of leverage because you can't possibly comply with all the laws that they, they have going on. Uh, but this is a regulatory onslaught of all time, reflecting the beliefs, the, the tone from the top uh, from the current administration. Now, in addition to, to regulators being too good in the good times, they're too bad in the bad times. They always overreact because now the game has changed. The bankers don't have any political leverage at all. The regulators are again being blamed for the problem, so they show up and they grossly overreact. Because most of the time, the regulatory agencies have stripped their senior people. They hire a bunch of children to come in who now are experts on what banks ought to be doing. And they, and they show up and tell you they've never made a loan. They never collected a loan. They've never been in business. And now they are experts. And we saw this in spades in the last recession. In fact, this current Great Recession, it was much deeper because of the excessive over-regulatory reaction to the lending business. And it was a really bizarre phenomenon. Because on one hand, the administration said, let's don't foreclose on the housing market, right? Let's protect homeowners. If people hadn't paid their homes and their, their, their payments in two or three years. Let's don't foreclose on them. But those business guys, they're bad. You know, business are naturally bad people. Let's go crane the residential builders and development developers. So we put about 95% of the local residential builders and development 
developers in the United States and in growth markets out of business. We did it. We didn't need to do it. A lot of those people had been in the business 50 years. Some of them should have failed. A lot of them that failed didn't need to fail, but you had this bifurcated regulatory uh, phenomena driven by people that had no ability to make judgments and had no expertise in what they were doing. We're just taking kind of a a tone from the top reaction. And in my career, I went through the early 80s and went through the early 90s, we had that same over-regulatory reaction in both cases. This time was just the most severe case. What's also interesting, um, in this last correction, we had the particularly biggest failure of regulators because they spurred an unnecessary panic. We needed an economic correction, but we didn't need a panic. And a lot of the damage to the economy came from the panic, not the economic correction. And they created a panic because they basically suspended rule of law. There was no predictability. There was no policy. There was no plan. Again, I went through the 80s and 90s, and for all the foibles, at least you kind of knew what to get rules of the games were. This time, this, was, by the way, was under Republican administration. There were no rules of the game. They uh, uh, let Wachovia fail, and they tried to sell them to Citigroup, who everybody in the market know was, knew was more broke than Wachovia. Uh, they let they say Bear Stearns, which everybody in the market knew couldn't possibly be a systems risk. I mean, we've been doing business with Bear Stearns for 75 years. We didn't lose a penny when they went broke. There was no systems risk in Bear Stearns. They say Bear Stearns, and everybody says, well, God, they're going to save everybody. Then they let Lehman fail. Um, Washington Mutual, large bank, was an old thrift, fails on the West Coast. They arbitrarily decide to bail out the uninsured depositors and, and, and cream the bondholders, which closed the market for banks. When rule of law fails, when you just got people making arbitrary decisions, there's no context, there's no rationality for decisions, that's when you get in panic. And that's exactly what happened. Markets respond, they make corrections, sometimes they can be tough. Panics are usually involved some kind of government interference in the process. Another very interesting thing, and, and uh, Kevin, and Martin both uh, participated in, in doing a study that relates to this, was there was a massive failure of mathematical modeling. Uh, the Fed's models failed. All the large financial institutions that failed were experts at mathematical modeling. I don't know how many times I was told we ought to have models like Wachovia, we ought to have models like Citigroup, we ought to have models like Bank of America, all which had big, big problems. So mathematical modeling failed, and that mathematical modeling was forced on the banks and then used by the banks to justify taking uh, irrational risks. What is really ironic, and I, th I think this is the biggest risk I've seen in my 40-year career, is what's happening right now. And that is that the Federal Reserve is forcing all large financial institutions to primarily manage their risks using mathematical models, which will ultimately create some very big-time problems. There are all kinds of problems with mathematical modeling when you take it too seriously. It can be used as a tool, but if you look at weather modeling, you should be suspect of mathematical modeling, right? <laughs> um, but one of the big problems, they always assume normal curves. I've never met a normal curve in the real world. They always have uh, these very small tails. And the reason for that, that they're always going to have small tails, if they had a big tail, nobody would pay any attention to them, right? But what, of course, what happens is the tails are always bigger, and these are the unexpected, extraordinary events, and they're the only thing that matters. The rest of the curve doesn't matter. It only matters when you get into the tails, and they, they, the models always treat the tails to zero. But the biggest issue is mathematical models delude management <coughs> into believing they're managing risk. So people become overconfident. Um, what's very, I, I, it was a very interesting thing to think conceptually. You can't really manage risk. 
You either take it or you don't. If you take the risk, it's going to come back and bite you someday. And when you believe that you can manage risk, uh, when you're actually taking a lot of risk, you're going to make a lot of bad decisions. This is the worst case because er the Fed is fo basically forcing everybody to use the same mathematical models, which means we're all collectively going to make the same mistake. And they're basically using, they're going to use it for credit allocation, right? And so the that's how we got into the subprime lending business, the same kind of phenomenon. They can, they can move these weights around on these capital models, and if everybody's in together, they can achieve social policy at the expense of the safety and soundness of the banking. I'll give you some other micro examples about the, the danger of regulation and modeling in, in specifically. Another area that banks are having to use mathematical modeling in almost exclusively is for small business loan decisions. Now, here's the problem. Small business lending is part art and part science. And what's going on today, the practical effect of small business lending standards because of this focus on mathematical modeling is the worst in my 40-year career. Look at small business creation. Small business creation is at an all-time low. It's not that existing small businesses can't get loans. It's the guy that comes in with an idea that's basically a venture capital idea, and fall business lending is a lot venture capital ideas, and we can't do those loans anymore. Because here's what happens. If a, if a loan meets the mathematical standards, we were going to make it anyway. The loans that matter are the ones that don't meet the mathematical standards, but you make a judgment that that person, that idea, that plan will work, and you make that loan anyway. I did that a lot. And that some of those businesses were extraordinarily successful and created hundreds of thousands of jobs. I will tell you today, if I were a small business lender, I couldn't make those loans because they wouldn't have made the mathematical standards forced on us by regulators. So practically speaking, small business lending standards were what I call venture capital small business lending uh, is the tight, they're tightest they've been in, in, in my 40 years. Now, here's another thing. Consumer lending. This is somebody was talking about the new consumer quote compliance, which is consumer regulation provisions, and I would call this unintended consequences. There was a great big debate you may have heard about on something called the qualified lenders test, and this was the standards they were going to set for home mortgage loans. Well, what was interesting, this shouldn't be surprising, they ended up setting incredibly low standards, lower than subprime lending standards, so they set standards below the subprime levels. Okay, that's very interesting, but they tacked onto these standards an incredible package of paperwork the bank has to do. And if you fail to do the paperwork, your loan is no good. Your loan is no good. Now, I'm going to tell you what happened at BB&T. For 50 years, we've been making small consumer loans in our branches. Somebody comes in, wants to add a carport, wants to add a, expand the kitchen in their house. We just make the loan in the branch. They don't have to save them a ton of paperwork, a ton of trouble, very low loss ratios in those loans can't do that anymore. Not because the, the loans aren't way better than the standard, but because if we screw up in the paperwork, we can not only have that loan challenge, we can have all of our loan portfolio challenged because we haven't done the paperwork right. So we're centralizing loan decisions for those kind of loans, which the practical effect will be, we'll make a lot less loans of that kind because you can't teach 2,000 branch managers how to do this much paperwork. Unintended consequences of government regulation. One of the just other fundamental questions. There's no way the regulators know what risk banks ought to take. They don't have some special insight. Only the market discipline can tell you that question. By disciplined banks, by charging higher rates on, on the bond portfolio, by <laughs> impacting the stock prices. 
And you need banks experimenting with different risk parameters and letting markets answer that question, forcing everybody to take the same risks and the same standards radically reduces economic growth. I would argue that Dodd-Frank and its implementation by the Federal Reserve has had a bigger negative impact on economic growth than the Obamacare phenomenon has. And I think it's ironic, here's the Fed printing money willy-nilly <laughs> on one hand, and then the regulatory arm is making it hard for banks to make loans. Now, it's particularly small business loans, which is kind of the core of job creation in the U.S., so small business lending has been hamstringed by the regulatory side of the Federal Reserve. Now, what's the solution? Uh, my solution is pretty radical. Uh, it's in my book. Um, what I would do is, number one, I would get rid of government deposit insurance. Bert Ely, who is here, developed a, a concept that would work for the privatization of deposit insurance for small depositors. <laughs> and that's what deposit insurance ought to be. So that would be number one. Number two, I would get rid of the Federal Reserve. Because I, I think the volatility in the economy is primarily caused by the Federal Reserve. I think sound money matters. I think when the Fed's radically changing the, the money supply and doing all the things that, that we just looked at, it makes economic calculation hard. It creates, well, I think every bubble in my career, the markets would have bubbled. The Fed's made them worse. I think, and I think they're doing it today. Uh, I think there's bubbles being created by the Fed today, and I think they'll keep doing it. I think you need... Um, uh, a private banking system based on something like a gold standard. I think that would work. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. We keep going back and comparing to the 1870s and say, well, they had all these flaws. You know, in 1870, we were riding around in steam engines. We have aircraft today. What if we'd been learning since 18, not since 1913 in private markets instead of having put in a, a government monopoly? I think we would have solved a lot of issues and have a radically better financial system in the U.S. And let's assume we're not going to do that. I think it's possible we won't do that. Uh, I have another simple solution. We ought to simply raise the capital standards for banks. And I would raise them to 15 to 20 percent. Uh, that Before the Fed, banks basically kept 20 percent capital. There have been no bank failures for 20 percent capital. Uh, let's, let's raise the capital standards to 20 percent. But simultaneously, we've got to get rid of all the regulations. We've got to get rid of Dodd-Frank, CRA, uh, truth in lending, et cetera, et cetera. Because banks cannot pay the regulatory burden, which is huge. Grossly, we, about 25% of our cost structure relates to regulations in the banking business. We can't pay the regulatory burden and have high capital standards. That's, by the way, why Dodd-Frank can't work. They want banks to raise their capital standards, and then they've imposed this massive regulatory burden. Of course, it's killing community banks first. We're, forcing a, we're going to force a consolidation uh, in the industry because even though theoretically they're immune to these, these, these rules, they aren't in practice because what regulator is going to let a small bank not do what it causes this big bank to do? So I would raise the capital standards, let markets discipline banks, decide who was taking ra rational risk, and I believe that would actually reduce volatility and create better economic growth. Free markets work. Why wouldn't they work in the banking business? Thank you very much. Thank you, John. John Allison is president of the Cato Institute and former CEO of BB&T. You can watch the full monetary conference at our website, cato.org.